just preparing yourself now, you're a little bit too late. The preparation for worship is each and every day as God is ministering to his people and he is exalting himself that we may see him more clearly. Amen. Praise God. To whom all blessings flow. The scriptures do declare every good and perfect gift is from above. We thank God for his goodness for allowing us another day's journey. And to come into his house of worship once again to be with the saints, to lift up and exalt his name. Amen? Well, this morning I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke, the 17th chapter. We're going to look at verses 11 through 19. And as you do, I just want, want you to know that there's a worship war going on right now. There's a worship war going on in this church. Right now. There's not a worship war that we're fighting over the color of the carpet or what the pews should look like. But there's a war going on right now with whom will you worship right now? And who will be the center of your worship? Because the flesh wants to be the center of your worship right now. The flesh will begin to remind you of what you're going to eat where you're going to go, what you're going to watch, what you're going to do, who's sitting next to you, who ain't sitting next to you. The flesh wants its worship right now. But then there's a war raging because the spirit wants worship. God wants his worship, his due, right now. So the question before you right now is whom will your worship center on as we get into the text this morning? Luke, the 17th chapter, verses 11 through 19. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. This is the very word of God. Hear the voice of Christ as he speaks to us this morning. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. As we look at this text this morning, I want to tag this text, the biggest loser. How Jesus saves even the worst. Let us pray. Father God, you are good. And before we make any request of you, we want to say thank you. We thank you for being faithful, for being merciful, for being mighty, for being wonderful, for being marvelous, for being wise, for being strong, for being faithful, for being just, for being pure, for being beautiful, for being good, for you are God. And Father, we do come, and I beg, O God, that your word will come forth that your spirit will break strongholds, even now in the name of Jesus. Father, apart from your word, 
we will leave out this place the same as we came in. So, Father, I ask that your word will break down strongholds. Father, that you will open up eyes that we will see, that you will uh, open up our ears that we may hear. Father, that you may change the, the will of our hearts, that we may love you. And, Father, may, may you be worshipped and may the center of our lives be set on Jesus this morning. Father, we do not deserve anything. Father, I pray that you would show us our brokenness. Show us how weak we are. But, Father, we are in great need of a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. So, Father, you have your way. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. It's indeed a privilege to be with you once again, uh, especially after last week had the opportunity to go back to Michigan to uh, do some teaching and preaching at, a, at, at, at John Tober's church for his uh, Christian Education Week. We had a wonderful time, wonderful five days of teaching and preaching and lifting up the name of Jesus to young people there in the city of Pontiac. Uh, and as we went through the week and came to that Friday night, I, I, I was really looking forward to getting a good night's rest. Uh, had poured out the entire week and was looking at about a six-hour drive that next morning coming home. So we, as soon as we got in that night, we got everyone in bed. Uh, all six of us in one hotel room. We had a fabulous time with no problems at all. <laughs> we got everyone in the bed and proceeded to go to sleep. But then at about 12.30 that night, we were awakened by a loud, blaring siren and this robotic voice that was saying, a fire has been reported. Please make your way to the exits. A fire, over, a fire has been reported. Please make your way to the exit. This is one of those moments where you wish that you could just lay down and it would go away. It wasn't going away. So as you imagine, we calmly but yet urgently got everyone together, got their shoes on, and began to make our way out to the staircase. And then we got down to the main lobby, and as we came in, I, I happened to notice that there was a lot of people in there who weren't as urgent as we were. And apparently what had happened was there was a wedding earlier that day, and there in the foyer was the drunken remnants of this party. So people are standing around with their drinks. They, they seem to not even care. Their concerns seem to be on themselves and them having another drink. See, their, their drunken condition hindered their ability to respond appropriately to this emergency. And as I was looking, I, I, I remember thinking, like, man, man, what losers. I bet you one of them put the alarm. <laughs> but you know what? Even as they stood there in that drunken stupor, completely obvious to what danger could be taking in place, it, it reminds me in a way that just like them, we're all losers. Broken, full of sin in need of rescue, at, at any moment we can find ourselves in this, this, drunken, this drunken state, just like they were. But not drunken off, off of liquor, but drunken off of the pleasures of this world. 
drunken off the pleasures of this world and unable to respond appropriately to Jesus Christ. Drunk with pride, so we really don't think we need Jesus. Drunk with the pursuit of happiness, so we don't remember Jesus. Drunk with guilt, so we think we don't deserve Jesus. But in some drunken stupor that has us not responding right in this emergency. No one really appreciates good news until we know the bad news. And the bad news is that we begin this life rebellious people living self-centered lives. And we've been cut off from God. Not having any goodness of our own, we stand before God as spiritual losers. But glory be to God that Jesus saves even the biggest losers. And what I want you to know this morning is that because Jesus saves even the worst of sinners, you should respond by centering your worship on him rather than yourself. In the text before us, we see such one who does this very thing, a man who recognizes how broken, how weak, how feeble he he is, and, and he responds to Jesus by making him the center of his worship rather than himself. Because Jesus saves even the worst. As we look at this passage of, of Scripture, we often hear the story of the ten lepers like this. Jesus heals the ten lepers, but only one goes back to give thanks. When Jesus does something for you, you should thank Jesus. And that's it. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe in this text, at least this text is about giving thanks to Jesus. But also, I think it's, it's, it's about much more, because the Bible is about Jesus, and this text is about Jesus. This text is not just about being thankful, but more importantly, this text is about why we should be thankful. Why your worship should center on Jesus. And I believe in this text, there's three reasons that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus should be the center of your worship because Jesus recognizes the worst. Jesus should be the center of your worship because Jesus restores the worst. And Jesus should be the center of of your worship because Jesus receives the worst. So let's look at verse 11 and dig into this text because Jesus does recognize the worst. Beginning with verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, let's pause right there. I like how even here Luke begins this passage with salvific overtones, overtones of the salvation that is coming. Because Luke doesn't tell you that this miracle took place in such and such area or such and such town, but he merely says that this miracle took place as he entered a village. Though we don't know the exact location, we do know the exact plan. Luke begins by simply stating the intentions of Jesus. He says, on the way to Jerusalem. The King James says, as he went to Jerusalem. Because 
at this point in the text, we see that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. And Luke begins by showing you where Jesus is going because the intent is he's going to Jerusalem for crucifixion in order that someone may be saved. Right off the bat, this Jesus has a purpose and he has a plan. He is going to the cross. He is living a sinless life. He is dying, living a life that you cannot live, taking upon him the, the, the wrath that we cannot bear. He is going to Jerusalem. And as he is on his way to Jerusalem, not only does he enter a village, but Luke mentions, he, he doesn't give you a time, he says he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Jesus, he was not in Jerusalem. He was not in Bethlehem. He was not in Nazareth. He was between Samaria and Galilee. Jesus was not in a specific place for specific people. See, what Luke is saying, Jesus is in a region where he can pretty much meet anybody. Jesus is not looking for the somebodies. He's looking for the anybodies. And he's in a place where he can meet the, the anybodies. See, I don't know about you. I'm not somebody. I'm one of those anybodies because I don't have a, a name. I don't have prestige. I don't have material wealth. I'm an anybody because I don't have anything. Jesus was not looking for somebody. He was making himself available for the outcasts of society. Those living on the margins, those who are often overlooked, those who, who we, we pass by each and every day. He's looking for them making himself available. Jesus has made himself available for the, for the worst in our cities. He's made himself available for the rich in our cities, for the poor, for the black, for the white. Jesus is making himself available to you today. No matter who you are and where, or where you are from, Jesus is passing by. Jesus, on an intentional, deliberate, determined death march to the very site where history's greatest suffering and pain and punishment will be placed upon him for the anybodies. And on his way, he encounters such a group of anybodies. And just so happened, this group of anybodies is the worst of anybodies. Because the Bible tells us that this is a group of ten lepers. See, it, it might be easy for us just to kind of pass over that. But the Bible tells us that leprosy is, 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 is a skin condition. And when the skin disease comes upon you, it, it could be small, something that, as far as a, a breakout on your skin, some type of rash, some type of like ringworm. But then it, it also extends from that all the way to what is now called Hansen's disease. And what takes place in Hansen's disease and what makes leprosy such a difficult disease is the fact that you don't feel pain. Matter of fact, you don't feel anything. So you have no sensation in your skin. You, you, you don't know when you're touching things. So you don't know if your hand was to happen to go over a fire. You wouldn't know if you happened to step on a nail. 
But the result will be the same. The skin will begin to fester and disease will begin to riddle your body. And pretty much you're dying from self-inflicted wounds. This horrible condition would eat at you slowly. And over time, your, your body will begin to be deformed and, and you will be able to, you will lose the regular functions of your body. You, you won't be able to walk right. You won't be able to talk right. You'll, you'll have a stench about you over time. See, I hope we, we understand what Luke is doing and what God is doing through leprosy, showing us the slow effects of sin in our lives. Like most of the time, sin doesn't just take you out, but sin creeps up on you. It, it, it starts with a little prick. And then at, at that spot where that prick was, that, it, it, that disease begins to spread. And sin begins to infect your whole body. See, you think you're just watching one, one TV show. But Satan has a, a bigger plan where that TV show is going to take you to pornography. And then pornography is going to take you to something even more well, wicked and radical that you will never find your way back. And then all of a sudden, sin will have you deformed and disfigured. People will look at you and say, who was that? Because sin will always take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And pay you things that you do not want to keep. The horror that these ten suffered extended to the point that it wasn't just physical, but they were separated from society. Leviticus 13 and 14 tells us how the Levitical law told the Jewish people how to deal with those who were lepers. And in Leviticus 13, verses 45 through 46, it tells us, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. And let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Imagine this band of rough and scraggly lepers. Not only will they have to deal with the, the physical infirmities of their body, but they will have to deal with the social stigma. They will have to deal with loss and, and guilt and shame. It's not just physical, it's, it's social. Here you are living amongst the people. You've been working hard. You've been diligent. You've been saving up. You got your house and you got your car and you have all these material possessions. And then leprosy comes upon you, and then all that you have is removed because you have to leave. All your physical wealth, all that you counted dear is gone now. But not only that, the emotional stigma, because now if, if you was married, you can't even hug your spouse. You can't kiss your children. You can't watch them grow up. You can't be involved in life. You, you can't have a community. You can't have that friend who always listens to you and always gives you a shoulder to cry on. You are cast out. You are separated. There is no hope. Your earthly possessions are gone. Your, your relationships are gone. Your dignity is gone. It, 
Imagine being forced to live in an area that nobody else wants to live. Have to hang with people that nobody else wants to hang with. Constantly reminded about your shame because anytime that someone comes near to you, you have to, you have to call out, unclean, 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 unclean. You have to, anytime anyone would get close to you, you would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. Not only do you suffer from the shame, you have to declare it yourself unclean, unclean. What a miserable existence. So when we see the lepers crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This is a cry of agony. This is a cry of desperation. This is a cry of, I've been to every specialist. I've been to every doctor. I've been been to every place. Uh, Anybody who is anybody who could take this away from me has been unable to. Jesus, have mercy on me. He's the only one that they can turn to. But yet, Jesus still acknowledges them. And for the average Jew, this this would have been unthinkable to entertain the request from a leper. A group of ten lepers? From such gross and grubby and repugnant people? To hear from them, to engage them? This is unheard of. The lowest of the low, yet we know that Jesus is not the average Jew. Jesus' recognition of this ten affirms the dignity of the least of these. Isn't this why Jesus came in the first place? In Luke, the fourth chapter, verses 18 and 19, the text tells us, as Jesus stood in the synagogue, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came for the broken. He came for the marginalized. He came for the the worst of the worst, those who had no one else. He came for them. He's come for you. Jesus did not come for the biggest and the, the best and the brightest. He loves the outcast and the overlooked. This it reminds me of a, a terrible, tragic story that I remember reading a, a while ago about this lady named uh, uh, Esmond Green. And this 49-year-old woman had uh, collapsed and died in a, a psychiatric emergency waiting room. And the crazy thing about it is she had been waiting there for like 24 hours. This woman was in need of help and care, checked herself into the psychiatric hospital, and the surveillance camera shows her sitting there for over 24 hours, at one point falling on the floor, collapsing 
having seizures and then stopped moving. All the while, people in the hospital was walking past. The video surveillance shows that it was almost, almost an hour after she had collapsed before anyone checked on her. And unfortunately, that lady died in the hospital. What sense does that make? The place that you're supposed to go for help. The place that you're, you're supposed to be cared for. You're supposed to be thought about. You're supposed to be looked after. The very place. Can you imagine such degradation of human dignity? Can you imagine anyone being treated worse than that? Such was the life of a leper. And such is some of your lives in here today. Though you may not have a visible skin condition, in your heart of hearts, you're hurting because it seems like the whole world is overlooking you. You may be the black sheep of the family. You may be the former drug addict. You you may be that kid who eats their lunch by themselves every day. You've been outcast and, and marginalized. But you're dying on the inside from the pressures of of keeping up this this false facade that everything's okay. Everything's all right. Well, how you doing, brother, sister, so-and-so? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. And you're broke on the inside, crying yourself to sleep at night. No matter where you are physically, understand this. Spiritually, this is where we all begin. Outcast, shunned, cut off, not because of a skin condition, but because of our soul condition. Our rebellion towards God has called us to be cast outside the camp with Adam. And only a heartfelt cry of Jesus, Master, have mercy on me, provides the hope you desperately need this morning. Those lepers cried out to the only one who could even save them. In response to the fact that Jesus could look upon broken individuals with such compassion, we should value Jesus through our worship. Worship centered on Jesus cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Understand this morning, no matter where you are, no matter how people see you, no matter what you've been through or or what you have or haven't accomplished, Jesus will recognize you. He he will recognize you as you stand far off, crying out, have mercy on me, God. He will walk up to you and give you a word and bring transformation to your life this morning. Because Jesus recognizes the worst, we should respond by making him the center of our worship rather than ourselves. But not only should we center our worship on Jesus because he recognizes the worst, but secondly, because Jesus restores the worst. Look here in verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back. Pause right there. In this miraculous encounter that Jesus has 
Jesus is exercising his kingdom authority. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is casting out demons. He is quieting storms. He is raising people from the dead. See, we think those are just uh, cute, beautiful miracles that, that Jesus was doing. Understand this, when Jesus was here and he was casting out demons and and giving sight to the blind and making the seed stop, he's doing nothing but what he's good at. It is exercising his dominion, authority over his creation. And the gospel narratives are showing us that Jesus is sovereign and the ultimate authority in all the world. And leprosy is, is, is no different. Jesus encounters these broken, hopeless men, and he begins to exercise his kingdom authority. See, the only difference here is that part of their restoration was dependent upon their faith. Jesus, he only he doesn't touch them. He doesn't hug them. He merely says, go show yourselves to the priests. I think Luke puts that in us to, make, to, to keep us from putting Jesus in a box. We want to think if, 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 we do a, if we keep a certain routine and do things a certain way, that Jesus is going to bless us. I, I, I'm going to make sure I do this and make sure I do that and make sure I do this and Jesus will bless me. He is saying, you, you, don't have, you have no idea what I'm going to do when I show up. I'm outside your box. I, I can heal how I want to heal. I can deliver how I want to deliver. He shows us this. Go show yourselves to the priests. Why do he say that? In Leviticus 14, 13 and 14, again, it deals with leprosy. In 14, it shows how a person is restored. And the temple priests acted as health inspectors in that day. And a person would come and they would be inspected and then the priest would declare them to be clean or unclean. So he's saying, based on Levitical law, go show yourselves to the priest. Hmm. So in Jesus telling the lepers to show themselves to the priest, Jesus is proclaiming that a healing is on the way. They didn't know when the healing was coming, how it was coming, where it was coming from. All they knew is that Jesus' word said, Healing was on its way. You're in a situation, and you're in a circumstance, and God is telling you to get up and move because the healing is on the way. And we are stuck in that same place because we don't see how he's going to get us out. We don't understand how he's going to do it this time, and he's saying, get up. He's saying, get up and pray. He's saying, get up and go, go to share Christ. He's saying, get up and worship. He's saying, praise your way through, not, not moan your way through. And he desires for us to get up by faith sometimes. By faith, the ten begin their journey to see the priest. And as they went, they were healed. A sudden and immediate healing. This is miraculous because in a moment, Jesus brought relief to their physical condition. No more leprosy in their bodies. No more uh, lack of sensitivity in their limbs. No, no fear of, of, of getting a cut or a whelp that becomes infected. They're, they're physically healed. He brings emotional relief to them. 
No longer do they have to live up under the, the shame and the guilt and the despair that comes with being a leper. He, he brings relief socially because now they can go back into the camp. They can get, get back and have everything restored that was given, that was taken away. No matter the situation or the circumstance, be it physical, emotional, or social, Jesus has the authority to bring restoration. We watch these TV shows, and, and for, for a minute, I got caught up in that whole extreme makeover type uh, TV show, and, and we see that there are stories about people who have suffered some type of loss. They have lost the job. They've, they've lost the loved one. They, they've lost the fire in their relationship, and this crew comes in, and, and through them building and, and changing things around, uh, and it, they make the person's situation better. They lost a job, well, we'll get you one. You, you angry with your spouse? Well, we'll create that area of your home that you can rekindle your fire. And, and, but what happens at the end? At the end, the, the family, they must stand there and they must say, move that bus. Before they can receive what is being given to them, they have to say, Move that bus. They, they can't just walk in when everyone's waiting. They, they have to demonstrate, I, I know you've been working on something. I, I don't quite know what it is, but I've been hearing the, the banging of the hammers. I've been hearing the, the, the saw in the back, and I know that something's been taking place, and I don't quite know, but I believe you because if I say move that bus, I'm going to see it. In our lives, we're going to have to step out by faith on the promises of God. And we, we don't know when the healing's coming, but we know he's been doing something. Uh, there's been an ache in your bones here. You can't see it, but you've been hearing the hammer. Uh, you, you, you've been hearing the saw. You've been, you've been seeing the dust fly everywhere. You know that Jesus is moving in your life, and you just merely say, Jesus have mercy on me, a sinner. To receive what he is doing in the background. Jesus is calling them to action. Do we really believe what we say we believe about Jesus? Is the question. Do we really believe that Jesus has kingdom authority over every situation and circumstance? I believe the Christians really believe that Jesus has kingdom authority over every situation, every circumstance, that we will, we will be the people uh, with the most hope, not the least hope. Because if Jesus can exercise kingdom authority over every situation, then my situation it has much hope in it. There's no despair. Jesus will restore you. It may not be physically. It may not be socially. It may not be emotionally. But your soul will always be his. Because Jesus restores the worst, we should center our worship on him rather than ourselves. We should center our worship on Jesus rather than ourselves, because Jesus recognizes the worst, he restores the worst, but lastly, because also Jesus receives the worst. 
verse, seven, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was, not, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke tells us that only one out of the ten returns to give thanks to Jesus. Only one publicly identifies the work of God in the life of Jesus and his ministry. Jesus is more than just a powerful man. He is God on earth to, to bring forth hope to, to broken and lowly people. And in this demonstration of power, the leper receives his healing, and he turns back to magnify, to celebrate, and to extol the name of God. See, but notice what Luke piles on at the end of this. He says he was a Samaritan. See, some 2,000 years removed, it doesn't have that shock factor to it. It's, it's like us saying, and, and, and missionaries made it to Hitler's bunker before he committed suicide, shared Christ, and he came out and says, I want Jesus, and I surrender. What? No, you, you're too heinous. No, you, you've done too much. No, no, you can't have forgiveness. This Samaritan, who is the, the worst of the worst to the Jews. Understand that the leper situation was so bad that those nine others were, were willing to live with the Samaritan. Their situation was so horrible, all acceptable social customs was thrown out of the window. And they were able to live together. And now this Samaritan comes back. So not only was he the worst, but now we see that he's the worst of the worst. Because though his physical condition may have been restored, he was still a Samaritan, though. Jesus points this out when he says he will be the least likely of all people because does this only, the only one who returns is this foreigner? Yet Jesus compassionately receives him and declaring that his faith has made him well. Let's pause right there and look at that because in the text we see rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. And we, and we think it stops at his, his physical change, his physical healing, but the word that, uh, that goes there it actually goes further, and, and it can be said, and your faith has saved you. His faith has done what? Saved you. This is proof of what Paul says in Romans 10, 13, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you a somebody or are you a whosoever? Have you bought into this, this fake ideal of, of making your name known? 
That's one of the benefits of social media, isn't it? Who were you before social media? Social media allows you to take all of your best days and put it in front of everybody. Every caption, every clip, every glimpse of your life is your best day. So now we got a bunch of people running around thinking that's your normal day. When really that's your best day. Because the rest of your day does not look like that. And now we begin to have these fake expectations of what life really should be. You're a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. I'm in great need of salvation. But because Jesus receives the worst, we should respond by making him the center of our worship rather than ourselves. Now, digging through the text, we, we may have some questions, and I think there are some questions that are left. And some questions that comes to mind in this text is, well, why was the Samaritan saved and the other nine not saved, even though they all exercised faith? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. And, but I believe the answer is found in the rhetorical question that Jesus asked. In verse 17, he says, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise except this foreigner? And in asking this question, Jesus exposes the hearts of the other nine. The other nine had a faith centered on selfish results. Let me explain. Sometimes people will believe what you say because they know of what they will get in return. They knew Jesus had power to heal people, to set, to, to set people free from, from bondage. You can have a faith knowing, like, I, I believe you. I, I do what you tell me to do because I know what I'm going to get in return. In other words, what Jesus is saying, while the other nine wanted a healing, the one wanted the healer. The nine were preoccupied with what they would now receive, where the one was preoccupied with who he would receive. Is this not the difference between what religion has to offer versus what a relationship with Jesus has to offer? In religion, we go to church and we do our Bible study in order to receive something back from Jesus. We, we, we give our, our money, we give our tips to Jesus on Sunday, we, we say nice things, we don't act too bad in order that we may receive something back from Jesus. But is that not religion? Whereas a relationship says, Lord, I, I don't deserve anything from you in the first place, and Lord, I don't have anything to offer you, but I'm just here because I love you, because I need you. A relationship with Jesus says, Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. But I also believe that the answer is found in the Samaritan's demonstration of his thankfulness before Jesus. The Samaritan begins to worship and he says, the text tells us that his worship was bold. 
He's crying out with no regard of who would hear and what others may say. Don't front. We come and worship. The song is going. We don't, we don't want nobody to see our worship. We're afraid what they may say. Well, I don't sound that good. So what? You ain't singing for me anyway. Well, I can't go to church. I'm worried about what I wear. No, it's not about what you wear. It's who you serve. He had a bold worship. His worship was humble. He came falling on his face on a dusty trail to worship at the feet of Jesus. This worship was not, well, I have to, I have, to have my way, and if this song is not sung, if that person is not directing, if, if you ain't sitting there, then I'm not going to enjoy myself. It's no, Lord, whatever, have your way. His worship is grateful, giving thanks to the only one who's able to make him whole. Genuine thankfulness. See, see, here's the key. We can only be genuine, genuinely thankful when we are not the center of our lives. You can never be grateful if you think you deserved it in the first place. You can never be grateful if you think you're supposed to get that anyway. You're just getting what you deserve. I remember as a child coming home one day with my father. He picked me up from school. I, I, I remember this day like it was yesterday. And it was my birthday, and I, and I asked him, I said, Dad, I said, did you give me a birthday cake? Just me and him. He's like, no, I didn't get you a birthday cake. I said, you ain't give me a birthday cake. And I remember, I, I, I sat there, I crossed my arms, and I started pouting. I probably cracked a tear. Yeah, my daddy don't love me. He ain't give me no birthday cake. Daddy ain't say nothing the whole ride. Get out the car. Walk through the door. He went in first. I came after him. He just kept on going. On the table. Big old birthday cake. I was so ashamed. I'm serious. It hurt me to demonstrate that type of ungratefulness to my father. Knowing that he had always provided before. He had always took care of me before. I never went without. And for me to behave that way was so sinful and so wicked. I thought I deserved a birthday cake. I should have been grateful for my father. So often, we walk around with this beef towards God. We're mad and upset that we're not getting what we think we're due. When our father, he's always taken care of you. He has always provided for you. He's always blessed you. If you look at the testimony of your life, you, I had a song go, I should have been dead and gone. But Lord, you help me live on. That's the testimony of your life. And you're sitting there pouting because Jesus hasn't done what you think he should have done. Ungratefulness. We're so ungrateful. Ungrateful. 
As long as we think we deserve Jesus, we'll never truly be grateful for Jesus. But secondly, what is worship centered on Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Worship centered on Jesus is when you love Jesus and depend on him daily. He's the center of your life. He's the center of your joy. He's your constant. He's the one you look to, and he is the one you look to serve. He's your motivation, and he's your inspiration. He is the center of all that you think about. If, If you can go a day without thinking about Jesus, then he is not the center of your worship. You are. If we can't even name why God is so good to us, then he's not the center of my worship. I am. Worship centered on Jesus is is his preoccupation, not with the blessings of God, but with the Son of God. Worship centered on Jesus flows from a heart that's fixated on, on Jesus. Let me make it plain. Worship centered on Jesus is like a teenager with their phone. It's always with them. They're always on it. They're, they're, they're cry if they lost it. And they'd be quick to get a new one. Is Jesus always with you? Are you always talking to Jesus? Are you, are, are you always dialing him up? Would you be devastated if Jesus didn't talk with you for a day? And would you be quick to repent to keep that relationship fresh? That is worship centered on Jesus. And not ourselves. Can we be fixated on Jesus? Just, just be twitching. I need my phone. I need my phone. I left the house without my phone. I done drove 20 miles, but I'm going back for my phone. I got to have my phone. I want to be the one that I got to have my Jesus. I need my Jesus. Give me Jesus. I left the house without praying. I'll go back and pray right now. I need my Jesus fixated, twitching. I got to see him. I got to text him. I got to talk to him. I I need him. That's when he's the center of your worship. Just knowing how far we are from God should help us realize how much we need to be rescued by God. Worship centered on Jesus involves a change of direction in your life. Lastly, why do we need, why do we worship ourselves instead of Jesus? What hinders us from worshiping Jesus? One, namely sin. In the garden, as Eve was tempted, the text tells us that the the fruit was was, was good to her eyes. And she would be like God if she ate. So that that worship centered on self has caused this, this rip and this ruin of our relationship. So, so by nature, we desire to worship ourselves. We want to be God. You want to be your own God. How do you know that? Because you want to do what you want to do. And how do, Well, why do you say that? Because when people tell you to do something else, you don't want to submit to their authority. Another reason that we're hindered is because we're drunk off this life. 
We're so worried about our friends. We're so worried about money. We're so worried about our homes. We're so worried about our families. We're so worried about TV. We're so worried about uh, uh, songs and social media. We're, we're drunk off the pleasures of this life. And just like a child about to eat dinner, you don't eat snacks because it will ruin your appetite. Some of us don't want Jesus because our appetite for anything holy has been ruined. We're sitting at the table of the internet and the music and our friends eating the junk food of life and you show up and you wonder why your spirit is cold, why you don't want Jesus. But lastly, we're hindered because apart from the spirit of God, we can't respond. We're so broken. If if given a choice, we will always choose evil. We will always choose pleasure over Jesus. So if you're wrestling right, if you're wrestling with choosing Jesus over this world, be encouraged that you even have a desire for things holy. And that God would do something with that desire. What is this before us? This is a picture of the gospel. We have the broken tent separated and cut off outside the camp. We have a picture of restoration. Jesus showing up on the scene just speaking a word. And his kingdom authority brings brings restoration. We have one that that turns back. It's like a turning from... It's a turning from the, the path that he was going back to give Jesus gratitude. I believe that's the image of repentance. We see a saving faith, a faith that, that is in love with the healer and not the healing. And we see Jesus' declaration of salvation. Is that not the gospel? A people who need to be broken in front of Jesus that he may restore us. Jesus recognizes the worst. Jesus restores the worst. Jesus receives the worst. Because Jesus saves even the worst of sinners, you should respond by centering your worship on him today rather than upon yourself. Consider this narrative and know that we are not the Samaritan, but we are the nine. We need Jesus to move upon our situation, to recognize our need. We need to to stop looking to Jesus like he's a helping hand, like he, he's the maintenance man there to help you pick up and move a few things in your life. But Jesus, I, I kind of need help moving this table, but you know, I, I, I can't really get it myself. Can you help? Jesus is not a maintenance man. But truly, we must look to Jesus as the Samaritan did, as the giver of life itself able to take our dead, Samaritan, leprous souls and to make it live. This is the hope we have in the good news and what God has done through Jesus Christ. Who's at the center of your worship this morning? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your